This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. When it comes to race and racism, the problem sometimes seems too big to tackle. We've seen clear instances like the murder of George Floyd or the discovery of unmarked graves at the site of Canada's residential schools, which makes it clear that there is a problem with racism, but it's not clear how we all move forward. With politicians like Donald Trump stoking the flames of division, it also feels like the us versus them feeling has deepened with no clear path forward in healing the rift. And whilst it's obviously not enough to claim that one is an anti-racist because they have a black friend, for instance, it's not entirely outside the realm of possibility that relationships, conversations, and mutual support don't have a part to play in anti-racism work. Today, we discuss a compassionate and scientific way to tackle racism. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. I'm Joita Gupta. My guest today is Shaquille Chaudhary, who is the co-founder of Anima Leadership, and author of Deep Diversity, a compassionate and scientific approach to achieving racial justice. Shaquille, welcome to The Pulse. It's really nice to have you on the program. Thanks for having me, Juit. It's a pleasure. What got you thinking about race and racism? That's a very long story. I would say that it ties back to realizing into my, in my 20s, that I had basically been struggling with internalized racism, that I, I grew up as a, as a kid in small town Canada. And I was, I was shielded for whatever reason from overt forms of racism. But I didn't realize the ways in which the subtle and the insidious forms of racism had affected me. And it mm-hmm. took until my 20s to realize how I spent a considerable amount of my early, uh, my childhood and my early adult years basically avoiding everything that had to do with my South Asian and Muslim identity. And all I wanted to do was I was attracted to whiteness. I was attracted to white people, white ideas, and, and part of me really desired to be white. And that, that aspect of pushing and pulling pushing my identity away and pulling towards me that which I am not, that internalized racism, uh, that awareness in my, in my mid-20s was what really woke me up to how important it was um, for me to understand these ideas, but also to share them with others because I realized we, hadn't, we just hadn't been educated uh, uh, in this area particularly well. So that's what I've been doing for over 25 years now. When we think about race and racism, there's so many ideas. And I think people often either think that those things all mean the same things. What would you say are the areas of overlap and the differences between ideas of multiculturalism, 
you know, cross-cultural competency and anti-racism, or can we just use them interchangeably? Not at all. They're very different ideas. And uh, multiculturalism is just this basic idea that we, we really uh, celebrate in Canada, which is that, you know, we bring together lots of different cultures and communities and we celebrate them all. And on the other end of the spectrum is anti-racism, which says, wait a minute, hold on a second. Uh, when we look at the data, the data tells us really clearly that people are not experiencing the same levels of success in society, that there are considerable more barriers in place for minoritized groups based on race, on gender, on sexual orientation. And in order to uh, eradicate racism, it's not enough to be non-racist because that just keeps things as status quo. You have to change the system. And so therefore the term anti-racist is approached, is, is embraced. And so um, there are two very different sides of continuum. One is very passive and celebratory. And the other one is, is much more um, conscious and aware of the ideas around how systemic forms of oppression take place. And we need to challenge those. The book that you've written is called Deep Diversity. What is the concept of deep diversity? Well, what I would say is that deep diversity is really uh, taking a holistic approach to how do we deal with uh, issues of racism. And so by training, I come from an anti-racist background, which I just explained, mm -hmm. but um, I realized that that was not enough, that we needed something more. And what we needed more was, was um, something that brought in uh, psychology because anti-racism is based in a analysis that's on history and sociology, very important to help us understand how we got here today. But it doesn't explain why people do what they do. And um, that's where the realm of human psychology comes in. And so, so deep diversity is really pulling together the aspects of anti-racism, anti-oppression with a psychological lens that helps us understand why we do what we do. That there are things at play that have to do with structures and, and systems at play but there's also things that have to do uh, with just our biology and our biological impulses, our desire to be surrounded by people who are most like us, who share our values and our ways of speaking. And those things are actually, um, there are biological uh, drivers at play and sociological drivers at play. And, and so this is just an opportunity to, to, to uh, my book says, well, we got to bring all those pieces together to approach this. And, and if we want to, change the systems of white supremacy and racial injustice, we need more people to understand these ideas. And the only way to understand these things is we got to show up with compassion and uh, recognizing that people are learners and we have to help them learn on this journey. So this is a, this is a book to help people learn. You decided, to, and I think you're brave for doing this, but you decided to wade into the old nature versus uh, nurture debate. So how much is it, Shaquille, how much of, of racism stems from our biology and this, this need that we have or this, the hardwiring that we have to be around people like ourselves? And how much of it is nurture? I can't tell you proportions, but we know from a very early age that, for example, the hardware, we're born with the hardware that that needs to discriminate. So we know from research from babies that in the first few months of life, they are 
reacting to people of all different backgrounds, more or less the same. But within six to nine months, and certainly under a year, there's already a change. We know that babies are reacting more quickly to people who share the same gender as their caregiver. They react more quickly to people who share the same race and ethnicity as their caregiver, the same language and even accent group as their caregiver. And researchers don't know what the mechanism is, but they're convinced that we are born with, uh, with the hardware that has to define who are my people. So that biology is in place. Now, our exposure and how we're socialized, that determines who is my people and who is not. Who is the groups that I should focus on and who is not? So the socialization is deeply important because although we are born with the hardware that has to define who our people are, um, our experience in the world, the social structures around us, the power dynamics around us, tell us who to focus on, which groups are in the center and we should give priority to and which groups are not. And so this is where uh, the biology and the uh, socialization come together in just a very intricate and seamless dance that makes it hard to pull that apart, but we have to learn to pull it apart so we can make the change that we desire towards a society that is more just and more fair and ultimately more peaceful. In your book, you say you can't really think your way out of racism. It's not just about the theories and the thought process, but that feelings have a lot to do with it as well. That's a really interesting idea. Tell me about where feelings come into all of this. From the last couple of decades of neuroscience research, we know that humans, um, uh, that feelings dominate. In fact, um, many researchers, many neuroscientists would say that our next thought is based on our last feeling, whether that feeling is conscious or unconscious. And so we know from the research that we are emotional creatures. We are not logical creatures as much as we'd like to believe that we are. And, um, and you can also see this in any conversation that we have around race, identity, discrimination. People get very emotional. And so over the last you know, 25 plus years of doing this work, I'm convinced that 90% of the problems we're trying to solve are actually emotional and unconscious. And only a small portion, maybe 10%, is really the cognitive. Because there's no shortage of good ideas how to create more inclusion, how to create more fairness. Um, but we tend to approach this work like we just give people more ideas, they'll, they'll fix it. And they'll be, it will suddenly become uh, non-racist or will become more fair. Um, and that just doesn't work that way. And so uh, I think we have to deal with things on an emotional level. Uh, if we're just throwing a, a cognitive idea at a problem that's emotional, that's kind of like throwing a drowning person a fire extinguisher. It's the wrong tool for the task. So we've got to show up with more emotionality. We've got to show up with more emotional literacy and be able to be in that dance, that often fiery dance with each other to help us understand so we can get to the other side. I'm Juwita Gupta. My guest today is Shaquille Chaudhary, who is the co-founder of Animal Leadership and author of the book, Deep Diversity, A Compassionate Scientific Approach to Achieving Racial Justice. Shaquille, before the break, we were talking about how you have to approach conversations about race for, with a little bit of emotional literacy. You can't just 
think your way out of this. But what do you do when people start to get defensive or feel ashamed or even fearful of saying or doing the wrong things? How do you manage those messy feelings when they come up? Well, I'd like to take a step back and make this make this concrete. So some time ago, let me tell you a story. Some time ago, I, I was walking towards a subway and a person came to me and they were very flustered and they were said, do you know where the government buildings are? And, and uh, the intersection we were at was so big that I couldn't really tell. I didn't know how to help them. But I said, hey, look, um, I got some time. Let me, let me see if I can help you out. And, um, and I said, would you like some help? And I offered that to this person, this, this woman, because one, uh, I didn't know where, where to direct her. And two, that um, because she used uh, a wheelchair. And so I offered my support because I had some time and he said, oh, that'd be great. And so we started moving down the sidewalk together. And uh, let's say this, this uh, individual's name is Monica, not her real name, but, but we started moving down the sidewalk together and I like her immediately. We've got lots in common and, and we're kind of joking around and she's irreverent and she's, she's um, uh, you know, self-deprecating and, and she's very witty and, um, and we're getting along like we've known each other for a long time. And at a certain point, she pauses and says, hey, Shaquille, you know, I, I bet you I can tell you what you do for a living. Hmm. And, and I said, that's really interesting because uh, I'm dressed in a, I just come back from a meeting. So I'm in a suit and tie and I've got a briefcase and, you know, I've got, a, I've got an overcoat. And, um, and I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I, I wonder what, um, what, she, what, what she's going to say. And she said, um, you know, you're, you're either a... Um, a psychologist, a teacher, or a social worker. And I was, I was a bit stunned because I had just left teaching. Uh, I was a school teacher. And if there's any three jobs I would use to describe my current profession, it would have been that. It would have been, um, uh, you know, bringing those jobs together. So I was like, wow, that I'm, my jaw's on the ground. And, you know, and she's kind of smirking at me. And, and she's like, and I have to affirm for her that she's correct. And she says, um, yeah, you know, I thought so. And, hmm. and she said, uh, and she said, you know, partially it's because those are the kind of people that are most likely to stop on the street to help uh, someone who, who needs help. And on top of that, I'm also a social worker. Right. Ah. And, then, and then that moment, I kind of, I had this, I had this jolt, this sort of flutter in my chest. And I know exactly what that flutter in my chest was. It was surprise. Hmm. I didn't expect her to say that. I realized that that flutter in my chest was that I had not expected her to say that she had had a job as respected right. and elevated in society as a social worker. In that moment, that flutter in my chest was that I had ex in that moment expected less from her. Now, I share that because that momentary hesitation, that flutter, that sort of like surprise, why was I surprised? Well, mm -hmm. I was surprised that's because uh, I've absorbed the lessons of ableism. I've, I've learned to expect less from people with disabilities because we're in a society that marginalizes um, people with disabilities. And as a result, we all, if we've been raised in the society, have also absorbed those messages that, that somehow people with disabilities are somehow less. Now, my work is around diversity, equity, inclusion. And I noticed that feeling come up inside of me. And that feeling is everything. 
Now, I say that because when you ask the question of, well, what can we do and how do we work with these things? The first place starts what starts with is we've got to be self-honest and we've got to show mm-hmm. up with compassion because we've all absorbed the messages in society about which groups are in the center and which groups are on the margins. And we have been taught to value the groups in the center and the groups mm-hmm. in the center tend to be white, tend to be able-bodied, tend to be uh, men tend to be people who are middle, upper middle class, um, tend to be people who are heterosexual, cisgender. So we've got all these things that are pre-programmed within us. Our job, if we wanna create more justice in the world, racial justice, gender justice, justice in all its forms, is we've gotta start becoming aware of the patterns. And these patterns are knowledge. We have to learn certain things. So that moment where I was surprised one of the things I already knew, what I already learned was that I had learned to recognize patterns. And in my book, I, I talk about racial pattern recognition or oppression pattern recognition. These are the external patterns. So um, that's one thing we have to do is to know those patterns. So when we experience them, we know what they are. We can identify mm-hmm. them, whether they're happening inside us or happening inside other people or happening around us. And so, so I... I offer that story because the identities we don't possess are the ones we're most likely to exhibit uh, our biases and demonstrate our biases. So in that moment, I'm able-bodied. And at that time, I was also Mm -hmm. able-bodied. And so some of the areas where I've had my most most significant errors and bias errors most likely to show up is around the identities we don't possess and is often around people with disabilities. That's a journey I'm on. Uh, this story some from some time ago, but it's a reoccurring theme. It's the area I have the most work in, even though my work is around equity, period. But mm-hmm. one size doesn't fit all. There's certain areas I know really well and other areas I have less experience with, just as it is the same with all of us. So the mm-hmm. so the first part is we've got to we've got to show up looking for the patterns inside us in the world around us. That's the pattern recognition piece. The second part is compassion. Actually, it's first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, because we're going to make mistakes. And by design, our biology has designed us that we are error averse by design. We start sweating, our pupils dilate, our heart heart rate and blood pressure goes up. We have a physiological response to make mistakes. And so Mm -hmm. that's why the compassion comes in, is we got to go easy on ourselves because we've got to learn. If we just deny that it's happening to us, um, if we deny that it's happening around us or that we are, it, it takes away our accountability. So compassion's important. The third part is we've got to catch ourselves in the act. Mm-hmm. We've got to catch ourselves in the act of bias. The story I just told you, the only reason I can tell you that story, that's a microsecond of a moment where I notice that surprise. I can tell you that because I've preloaded within my mind uh, and within my emotional body that I got to be on the lookout for my sketchy behavior. And so do you, so does everybody. We gotta be on the lookout for where our beliefs contradict our actions and feelings. And so I tell that story because I've already preloaded that I can catch myself in the act most often. Um, And so just that subtle body reaction is my bias, is what I've been taught incorrectly about people with disabilities. And this is the same around issues of race, whether we're talking about anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism. We have learned these, these ideas. And so we've got to then, we've got to catch ourselves in the act and then 
um, the fourth step I would suggest is then we got to do something about it. We got to do some mm -hmm. self-learning. We've got to figure out why it's happened without beating ourselves up, but learning from our mistake in order to change it. So I guess I would offer that as a way of a few steps that can help us understand what's happening to us because we want to change. If we want to create a more just society, we're going to start with ourselves and see how we've been affected by the systems around us, around the racist systems, the sexist systems, the ableist systems. And when we can do that, uh, we're much more likely to make the change that's necessary in that moment in our lives, in our organizations, in our, in our, um, in our families. We just have a few minutes left, but in just picking up on what you said, in the last year, year and a half, I mean, we've dealt with a severe global pandemic. We've seen the aftermath of Donald Trump's having four years in office, the murder of George Floyd. Um, I talked about the discovery of the unmarked graves and it's brought racism in Canada to the forefront. With everything you've said and everything that I have pointed out, how hopeful are you really that we can turn a corner or does the problem just seem too big to tackle? Well, I think I'm always hopeful because as people with a lot more knowledge and insight uh, than I have taught me, which is that without hope, we can't have courage. And so I am hopeful because I have to be hopeful. And um, sometimes when I get really despairing, I've learned to make meaning. And that's one of the things I also talk about in my book, how meaning making is really important. We've got to make meaning because um, of, of the hard stuff. And racism is hard. The idea that the U.S. may fall apart and break out into civil war is a very difficult idea. When I think about those things, they terrify me. Um, but I also have to learn to make meaning of that. And the way I make meaning is that, is that the world's always been hard. There's always been racism. And I have to put myself into context. And I think, well, is what I'm working on today and what I'm trying to teach my children and the work I do in the world, is it harder than it was 50 years ago in the height of the civil rights movement in the 60s? Is it worse than it was 100 years ago? Or is it better? And undoubtedly uh, things are better. Now that doesn't mean that we can't lose things and Donald Trump and, and the decline of the Republican party and the rise of authoritarianism has taught us that we cannot be complacent. And I think we spent some time being complacent and that trusting that something as robust as, as uh, the world's, you know, uh, the beacon of democracy in the world with all its imperfections, that it could fall and we are watching it crack. And so um, when I see that, it terrifies me, but at the same time, I, I keep it in perspective. And, and I think about this as it's always been hard, but we are further ahead than we were uh, before. I mean, when I think I look at, at um, same-sex marriage and trans rights right now, uh, that wasn't even, um, trans rights weren't even much of a conversation a decade ago. So we're, we're improving, we're increasing. The George Floyd moment was terrifying and horrific. And at the same time, it's also a moment in which there's a much deeper conversation happening around anti-Black racism. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, and its report that came out a half a dozen years ago now. So I look at all these in context of the progress we have made, and we have to keep track of that. 
but the challenges will always be there. So um, I, I guess I would leave it. I would leave it like that. That we have to stay hopeful, and there's a lot of evidence that we should stay hopeful in order to keep moving and advancing the work. Shaquille, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you on the program. Lovely to be here with you, Juwita. Thank you. Shaquille Chaudhary is the author of Deep Diversity, a Compassionate Scientific Approach to Achieving Racial Justice. That's all the time we have today. Nasreen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your weekend.